This is The Coffee Break, a podcast on the state of the business in data networking. We discuss vendors' moves and news, products, employees, analysis on products and positioning, and generally take a look at the business of networking in the time it takes to have a coffee break, uh, we think. I'm Greg Farrow, blogger at etherealmind.com and uh, erstwhile writer at a range of fine websites like network computing and so forth. And joining me today is Andrew. How are you today, Drew? I'm good, Greg. How are you? Not bad. Where can people find you on the internet? Uh, I am the director of content and community at Interop. You can find me on informationweek.com slash interop, where I am blogging repeatedly and often. Uh, And you will also see me live and in person at Interop New York this October at the Javits Center. Yes. Looking forward to it. Must, marvelous must, edifice. Yes, and me, and we must book some tickets to that, mustn't we? We must. Okay, let's get going because we haven't got a lot of time here today. Uh, first of all, Cisco Q1 slump drops the switch market like a school case, and I mean this: the ass fell out of the by what? Fifteen percent? Did they say twenty percent? Yes, that's the numbers apparently. Yeah. So what they're basically saying is that in a normal quarter, we sell a shed load of. Um, Ethernet switches, and people just stop buying them completely. Um, there's two pieces of research. We've put a link to the Network World article. Um, there's a piece of research from Deloro Group and a backup piece from IDC, both of which predicted, to, said that there was a massive slump in switch sales. And in a stunning piece of logic, Cisco's share price went up. Because... <laughs> <laughs> on the news? Because it couldn't get any worse, right? <laughs> <laughs> what do you that's think? The invisible hand of capitalism for you. Yes, that's right. Um, you know, the the sort of received wisdom is that uh, people are sitting on the sidelines waiting to see how SDN shakes out. Um, so, not necessarily investing in gear now that they might find doesn't live up to what's supposed to happen with SDN later. Um, mm-hmm. that, that seems relatively logical to me. Oh well, okay. So I'm going to disagree completely. <laughs> <laughs> right um, I, I, I've written this into a book, so I've been, I don't know if we talked about this, but I'm writing a book on the white box networking and uh, just how much and the nature of white box Ethernet, right? Mm-hmm. So I agree, there are people, one of the factors is that SDN is initiating a slowdown, true. We're also seeing a lot of Ethernet sales decrease, right? So this slowdown is by revenue or gross sales, not by ports or switches. And I think one of the big factors is that white box is taking out a significant chunk. And if you figure that your average white box switch sells for one-fifth of the price of a vendor badge switch, and let's say they took 20% of the market, then you're going to see a 20% drop in revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, that's interesting, though. But Cisco, um, according to this news story, companies like Arista – was up over 90%, Juniper up 52%, mm-hmm. uh, HP steady. So um, I, I, I don't know how much of a dent white box could be making. I guess if you're talking just revenue, yep. um, but I know Arista certainly isn't giving its switches away free. So No, but they're cheaper than Cisco's. Are by, they really? Oh, yes. Yes, by about a third, by about 30% less. Mm-hmm. So every time Cisco makes it, every time Arista wins a deal, 30%, you know, some amount of revenue is no longer attached to the Ethernet market. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, for example, I'm working on a state of the data center report for Information Week, and the early responses that came back in the survey data, which I just got yesterday, show that price is now a key factor for a large percentage of the audience. Mm-hmm. 
and I think people are literally switching to cheap. They're not. There's a. It's not a. You know, not everybody, of course, but there's a significant percentage of people saying that expensive, that cheap. I'll buy cheap, and that's the overriding factor. I agree with you that I think we are. There's always been, you know, a cheap option in the Ethernet switch market, but it seems to me that these days there is significant price pressure now. Uh, I think partly brought on by the white box movement, um, but there's also just so much competition happening that um, price really is making a difference, and Cisco really does have, have a, a hard time uh, justifying its its margins. And the second thing that's happening too, of course, is that we just don't need as many switch ports. Mm-hmm. Right, so if you keep in mind that most campus networks are static, nobody's going to be upgrading their campus networks with 10 gig to the desktop because it's not needed. And even if they are, most of the campus, even people who have campus networks, if they're not actually sending employees to work from home or giving them tablets, they're switching to Wi-Fi. Right. Right, so the campus market has got to be shrinking. And if you're in the data center, right, five years ago I would go and connect a server and it would have at least eight one gig ports. Mm-hmm. At least eight one gig ports. Um, yet when I go to ten gig, I can replace those eight one gig ports on a physical server and now just have two ten gigs. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you figure that your average data center, you know, mid-sized company used to have eight times five hundred servers, so you'd have four thousand gigabit ports, one gig ports, and then behind those, you know, four thousand ports, there would be another two thousand ports connecting them all together. Right? Roughly, yes. uh, I'm grossly, you know, whatever. It is. Maybe it's a thousand, whatever. Right. But in 10 gig, you can actually, each one of those um, servers, right, each one of those servers that there now can fit into a dozen hypervisors. Right. So you, you've gone from a situation, say, in 2008, where you have, a, say, 400 operating systems instances, and to today, where you've got 1,500 instances. But in 2008, you needed 800 ports to connect them all together. In 2014, you need 30. Because if you're running 50 to 1, you just don't need that many ports. So your overall demand for ports is not just a bit less, it's exponentially less. That's significant. Yeah. A 48-port switch, 48-port 10-gig switch, can support 40 servers, let's say, right, 1RU servers. Each one of those 1RU servers can support 50 operating systems, 50 servers, virtual servers. Well, that's 2,000 servers. Mm -hmm. How many switches do you need? Just one. Just one, two, well, actually one for redundancy. Oh, two, yes, redundancy. So I think there's a shift going on here where we just don't need, and this is why, you, and you can get all the functionality that you need from a switch from a cheap one as much as you can from an expensive one. There's mm-hmm. very little differentiation for most people. So anyway, that's just my view. Uh, I'd I buy it. <laughs> okay. So I don't think so, it's going to get better. I think a lot of people think it's going to get better, right? It can't get any worse. The switch market's dropped, slumped by 20%. It's got to grow, right? I don't think so. I think on the whole, it's much more likely to stay where it is or drop further. And I think drop further mm-hmm. is more likely than not. So it be interesting to see. It will be interesting to see. Okay. Well, there wasn't much else in the report because it's all hidden behind a paywall. So if you're a customer of Deloro Group, you can go and find out more about it. Uh, and look at the long-term forecast, but unfortunately we can't see those because I don't have that sort of money. Uh, HP links SDN and OpenStack in new applications. I think this was your article? It was mine, yes. 
Yeah, HP this week um, announced a new application, Virtual Cloud Networking, uh, which essentially links Helion, which is HP's instance uh, of OpenStack, with its SDN controller. So uh, HP is making an effort to marry uh, OpenStack orchestration with SDN. Yeah, Helion actually goes a bit further than that, though, doesn't it, too? uh, So the Virtual Cloud Networking piece that they announced is a software element that goes into OpenStack so that OpenStack can orchestrate HP networks via yes. SDN. So it's yes. a true SDN plugin, commercially supported, lots of money, if I read your article correctly. Yes. But the interesting part about Hellion 2 is that they actually extend it and they're now saying, we're going to sell Hellion, Helion? Helion? Helion, I think. Helion? Yes. So they're going to do something conceptually similar to what InterCloud is doing, except it's different, what Cisco's InterCloud is doing. Mm-hmm. And I hope to have an article up on network computing in the next week or two about this where I compare the two competing strategies. But Helion, Helion is going to... Um, they're going to offer it to resellers so that resellers can buy it and sell it on to customers to build their own Helion OpenStack instantiations. Mm-hmm. Or they can use HP's public cloud version of Helion. So do you feel like this is uh, sort of a long-term attempt at cracking the hybrid cloud play? Um, I th- I don't believe that HP's that organized. <laughs> um, but I think it's clear that, you know, they've, they've committed to OpenStack because there's a significant customer demand. I'm sure that HP continues to love VMware because that's where its customers are. Yes. But they have to do something about Amazon in the same way that Cisco does. Mm-hmm. So you need to have a public cloud. But a lot of companies that do business with Hewlett-Packard, Dell, Cisco, don't want to be on the public cloud, although they think they do. So you, as a salesman, you want to be able to say, yes, Mr. Enterprise guy with lots and lots of money and, you know, thinking, I'll give you both. You can have whatever you like. And Mr. <laughs> CIO can then go, good, well, we'll make that decision later. Yes. So I don't see it as a... It's a strategy. There'll be money invested in it. Some customers will buy it. People will use what they want, what makes sense for them to use, and then over time we'll see whether it wins. Absolutely. So I'm not sure that there's anything in there that's going to be... And it's a very similar thing to Intercloud, except Cisco's um, putting money into service providers for them to go and buy cheap Cisco equipment or giving it away in the hope that they'll build clouds and start making money and pay them back later. So it's kind of the right. same thing, making public clouds possible for other people to build. So Yes. yes. Um, I thought the OpenStack element was interesting. Uh, I guess I think primarily of HP in terms of enterprise customers, and uh, I don't know that the enterprise is really all that on board with OpenStack yet, so I think they're a little bit out front of their customers. Um, and that's probably on purpose to say we're here when you'll get there, uh, and we've got our lovely services unit to help you integrate this and roll it all out. I think this comes back to the cheap. So I find OpenStack is a validation of this this concept that I was talking about of customers want cheap. Uh-huh. So VMware is now selling for you know a single server is getting licensing of between three to five thousand dollars per physical server, uh-huh. and customers are sort of going you know actually this is quite expensive because keep in mind you've still got to pay for your Microsoft on top of that or your Red Hat licenses. Yes, and it's actually not cheaper than having individual servers anymore as VMware continues to jack up their prices. So, and if you want to start getting into NSX, you're talking about the same amount you pay for VMware as you are for your NSX licenses. 
and so you're now buying a server for, you know, let's I'll just pick out some numbers from the year. They're not accurate, but you know, if your physical server costs three thousand, your VMware license is five thousand, and your NSX license is another five thousand. Is that good value for money? Uh, it's pretty deep, I think. Yes. Whereas Hellion is being sold for fourteen hundred dollars per server. Mm -hmm. oh, no doubt there's a price for the VCN, the virtual cloud networking piece on top of that, but it's still nowhere near the order of magnitude because HP is getting to leverage a lot of the IP that other companies have contributed into a pool, so the overall price will drop. Mm -hmm. So I think that the OpenStack is going to be very compelling, and everybody knows it is, and everybody knows it's not mature yet, but it's only a matter of time until you know products like this prove out that OpenStack's going to work. I mean, if HP is putting money into OpenStack and Cisco is and Dell is, what does that tell you? Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like there's something there. Yeah, has to be something there. The weakness is in networking, of course, so there is an opportunity for companies to innovate around that space. Uh, moving on along, this week um, there was a lot of hyperbole and uh, hot air expelled around Docker. Uh, the main thing was that Docker went to version 1 at DockerCon, so a, a technology which is barely a year old, and that's true, by the way. It was literally sort of, it's been around for a couple of years, but it uses a thing called container technologies. I don't think you've run into these container technologies much yet, Andrew. Um, my previous exposure to Docker was a line of uh, middle-aged khaki pants, uh, khaki pants for middle-aged men. So, okay. uh, yeah. <laughs> I resemble that comment. <laughs> As do I. I probably have a couple of pairs up in my closet. I'm going to give you a very quick thing. The concept behind containers is that you should have a, instead of having an operating system, right, if you've got a program that you want to run, and maybe you want to run it for 10 minutes, why would you actually have an operating system that's instantiated 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you say to yourself, well, if I'm only going to run this script for you know, five or 10 minutes, and then I'm going to run it four times a day, why don't I just instantiate a machine to run it for that, to run that script? And then when I finish, throw it away. Mm -hmm. um, this is how I think of it, right? And so the concept behind Docker is that you can instantiate a VM within 350 milliseconds, typically. It varies according to certain parameters, but that's the concept, is less than a second. And that machine then attaches to some sort of storage, runs, loads, and then you do what you need to do, and then you ditch it. And your data is, you know, if you need to keep the data from what the script has done, you write it into some external data repository. So you might, mm -hmm. if the script runs and has some permanent state that it needs to keep, you know, like I polled this status from here, go and put that in a database. The database runs permanently, but the VM or the script that runs the script does not. It disappears at the end. That's containers. Okay. So um, you keep the data, you sort of... Uh, open and close the mini application hmm. as necessary. That's right. The way it does it is you have a, an image on the disk, and instead of making a copy of the image to run, so when you do a VM, you have a VM image, right? Mm -hmm. And when you make a copy, so normally if you wanted to have another VM, you'd duplicate that image, and then you'd boot that image into the operating system, and then everything that the operating system does, it writes back to the, to the image, right? So Docker says, you know what, 95% of that image actually never changes. So what we'll do is everybody will boot from the same image, and then we just write the deltas. And then when we're finished, we just clean it all up and throw it away. So mm -hmm. if you have any temporary state, it gets written to the disk, but otherwise it's just will. And then when the, the instance is terminated, the, the disk is released back. So the delta, only the delta is kept, is handled. Mm -hmm. That's the magic as far as I know. Sounds interesting. So why all of the hoopla? 
because you can now increase your utilization. So, for example, the traditional hypervisors that we talk about, VMware, whatever, you have 2,000 servers. Well, how many of those 2,000 servers that you have in your fleet are actually needed 24 hours a day? What if you could just shut them off? Mm -hmm. So what happens if when you create an invoice from your accounting system, you spawn a Docker instance and it runs the create an invoice process or the batch process against your accounting system? And then when it's finished, the Docker instance shuts down and then exits. Mm -hmm. How much more efficiency can you get out of your compute cluster at this point? Right, okay. Yeah. So we're looking at further server, physical server consolidation, potentially. And less Ethernet ports. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this all fits together. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's a through line here. We didn't even plan it this way. No, that's true. We should do this more often. Be clever. <laughs> we should be clever more often. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, yes, that's how I understand Docker. I hope I'm right. I've only been reading the articles. I've only just started getting engaged with Docker. I could... So if you um, please please feel free to send me emails saying Greg you need to read this and tell me that it's intelligent. Uh, you can do that by sending me an email to greg.ferro at packetpushes.net. Love to hear any feedback about the show or anything like that. So that's Docker. It was very exciting. Now the biggest thing about Docker was that Google said we will now support Docker in Google Compute Engine. So in mm -hmm. Google's cloud compute, we're ready to go. And then also, and I saw it today, is that Google open sourced a tool uh, called, I'm going to get this name, Kubernetes, it's called. Uh, Kubernetes is a, um, a tool for managing container instances because Google fundamentally runs this container technology internally itself. That's how it operates. And they've open sourced uh, Kubernetes, which is um, allows you to orchestrate hundreds, thousands, millions of these container instances and do stuff with them. And this is a big deal because it means that if you've got a Docker type app, now you've got an orchestration app and you can now bring it to Google's compute engine. And that um, more interestingly here, the article that I'm reading here from Cade Metz on Wired is he's saying that um, it's also able to orchestrate instances on the Amazon too. Interesting. Um, I think, but uh, if, if I'm understanding you, part, part of this is the, the the data component that the application needs to run on, and that's always an issue with public cloud in terms of moving data up, keeping it in, whether you need to take it out. Mm. So, I mean, I can see why they'd want to try to hook it into Google Cloud um, or Amazon, but yeah. my initial impression is it seems like something that would most likely happen within your own private data center. Uh, at this stage, yes, although the ability to run it in Google Compute would make me think about it. If I had Docker apps, I might go and put my Docker stuff into Google Compute Engine because that's a good place to put it. Mm -hmm. um, and you could have a bit of a play with it. So I've done a bit of a play with these things lately and not much of one, don't get me wrong, but I have enough to start getting some insights into these tools and I'm becoming um, less sanguine. That I believe that ultimately for most companies, private enterprise or private clouds are going to be very big for the next decade or so. But after that, I think as the applications begin to transform in the longer term, there's going to be more in the public cloud. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. Uh, there was a uh, blog post this week, uh, sorry, an article in Bloomberg.com talking about IBM said to be in a near deal with global foundries to sell its chip-making facilities. Yes. IBM's been very proud of its ability to design and manufacture its own chips, and but about a decade ago it stopped being very good at it. 
and has fundamentally run behind. And this article says that they may have been losing as much as $1.5 billion a year with this business. Yes, that was stunning. Yes. That's awesome, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they're looking to sell it off, and I believe that what they're actually – uh, the article sort of talks about a few things, but one of the things about this is that I think is interesting is that if IBM gets rid of chip manufacturing and OEMs it to somebody else, how much of um, this vertical integration that made IBM great is going to be lost? Um, yeah, well, I mean, it, it seems like one of the lessons of the past couple of decades is that vertical integration doesn't really have all that much of a place anymore, right? Well, that's Well, I'm not seeing that. So I'm seeing now a lot of companies are saying, I outsourced this or I sold this piece of business off, which I actually should have kept because when I outsource, I lose the ability <laughs> to um, communicate, right? Mm -hmm. So um, classic one was when I was working for a company and they outsourced all their IT to a, a provider, an outsourcing provider. And the guy, people who ran their network, three years later, they actually employed more staff internally to manage the outsourcing contract because the agreement hadn't was five was five years in length, and the network was so different four years in that the contract never worked. Right. Right. The contract said we will do this, and of course, these guys in four years, the technology had changed, their needs had changed, but the contract didn't let them change at all. And that's mm -hmm. that's always happens in my opinion. I I, uh, I I take your example, but I think um, when you're talking about I mean, if you flip that, then you look at, you know, the whole white box uh, argument where it's, you know, uh, off-the-shelf components, really, mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter. You know, it's Cisco can say, you need ASICs, but the market's saying, you know, you don't really. Yeah. So. But the ASICs, at this point in time, the ASICs themselves are so far ahead of what we need that it doesn't matter. Hmm. Right? So what do you need, a 40-port, 40 40-by-40-gig 40 40 switch? How many... Mm -hmm. how many Companies out there need to buy a uh, a one RU switch with 48 40 gig ports. No, I mean I think what I'm saying is that um, I, I don't know that IBM loses all that much by not being able to to make its own chips to its own specifications. Uh, I think there's a reputational damage. So IBM's always say, you know, we do everything. We make the chips, we make the cases, we do the, you know, and they've sold off the server business, they've sold off the desktop business, and that there's a reputational damage as that goes down, because now IBM doesn't do all the things, right? Sure. But uh, I think um, compared to $1.5 billion a year in losses, they're willing to suffer a little bit of reputational damage. Yes, they are. But then they also lose the ability to... Maybe if they hadn't have underinvested. The thing about chip manufacturing is you've regularly got to make $5 billion investments in your foundries. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that is a hard bite to swallow. Yeah, so you might say one year, you know, I could save $4 billion if I didn't invest in my... <laughs> that's right. <laughs> just let it slide a little bit. Yeah. Little bit. And now you end up with a foundry that's not competitive and you're losing $1.5 billion every year before you because you didn't spend $4 billion 10 years ago. So right. it is one of those sorts of scenarios. But uh, I do wonder if this idea of um, merchant silicon is going to, like in networking, there's still a few players making their own silicon. Juniper makes Trio. Uh, Extreme, through their um, Enterosys purchase, is still making their own silicon for the their flow processor chip there. Cisco, of course, is making a big song and dance about the four or five different chipsets that it's got to run its core networking products. But does this signal 
that those strategies are going to come unstuck. Now they don't make them themselves; they OEM them. You know, they design them, but they're going to get them manufactured externally. Sure. I'm not sure if this signals a change there or not. It might. I don't know. I don't know either. Peering into the crystal ball, which still has lots of cracks in it. It's kind of cloudy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I didn't get a lot of sleep last night, you know. Yeah, whatever. Take it with a grain of salt. Take it with a grain. So you uh, put up an article about getting a warrant for cell phone location tracking. Yes, um, I am a bit of a pro-privacy advocate, and so I was pleased by the headline. Um, it, this is from uh, Ars Technica. Uh, a, a U.S. appeals court says that uh, police have to get a warrant to get cell phone location data. Um, you know, so that they can try to track a suspect. Uh, apparently that wasn't necessary beforehand. Uh, a, a, several other appellate courts said it wasn't necessary uh, to get a warrant, but uh, this one is saying yes, so uh, when the appellate court system disagrees, then that tends to kick it up to the Supreme Court. So we'll see what happens. Okay. It's all a bit a bit confusing to me. American law seems uh, somewhat... Oh, it's a mess. Yeah, it seems to be. You know, how can... I mean, I understand that one court can say this, you know, with the case that's in front of me, I, I rule in this direction. And then another court can have a different opinion. But when you can have, like, 50-50 out of about 30 different cases, it seems like, hmm, let's just make it random. <laughs> you know, let's toss a coin. <laughs> it's, it's not a perfect system by any means. Yeah. It's sort of, sometimes I think um, it's a lack of governance. So your federal government, the federal government in America, you know, the, what do they call it? Is it called federal government? Yes, it is. Um, needs to start making legislation to clear these things up, but it might be paralyzed by other parts of the system. So, <laughs> you know, the, the Tea Party who says, we want less government, not more, so we don't make any more laws. And well, so now you only have bad laws left or something? Is that a fair <laughs> argument? <laughs> Uh, the, the paralysis is, is partly built in. That was partly done by design, although uh, other forces, including the notion that uh, money is speech, have helped to gum up the work significantly. Hmm. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a tangled mess. Um, but, uh, you know, eventually we, we, we kick it up to, to nine folks in robes and they take a look at it and say yes or no. Uh, as a, they probably take a consistent overall view as well. Look at what's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, the, the last thing they ruled on uh, like this was there was a case about uh, the police wanting to attach uh, GPS devices to suspects' cars so that they could monitor where they were going. Yeah. And I believe the Supreme Court said, no, uh, you had to get a warrant to do that. You couldn't just willy-nilly stick stuff on. So it, it may work out that the Supreme Court also says, yes, you need a warrant for cell phone location data. I don't know. It's hard to read this court. Does that mean Facebook and, should get a warrant to track me as I move around the Internet? Uh, no, because you have voluntarily signed up for Facebook. Yeah, I haven't actually, but I still have a ghost profile at Facebook. Uh huh. Yeah. So what happens with Facebook is they take, they establish unique details about your computer, your web browser, whatever, and by interrogating third-party cookies and a range of other criteria, they make a shadow profile of you, and still mm -hmm. track you as you move around the internet. So any time you actually sign up, they can attach you to that profile and then actually have the last ten years of tracking data on you. Yes, this is it. I, I obviously, I definitely agree that I, this is something that also concerns me. Um, that these kind of issues tend to get addressed first by uh, state powers, people who can come to your house and arrest you. Mm. Um, and uh, so we may, you know, once this gets worked out, 
go talk about consumer privacy from giant web companies. Um, mm. I hope we do. I don't know what will happen, but we'll see. Yeah, who knows? It's very strange. I mean, in a, so, for example, I live in the UK where there is no Bill of Rights. Right. Right, so we have a democracy, and in the sense that um, the government here is probably far more um, focused on the people because this is the birth of democracy, but as an individual citizen, you actually have no rights whatsoever because there is no Bill of Rights here. So... It's confusing to me that the Bill of Rights actually makes it possible for you to do things, but your government doesn't. Whereas over here, the government over here does make decisions as the general for the general well-being of the populace or the, the people, but we still don't actually have any personal rights. Um, yeah, it's uh, interesting, isn't it? We shouldn't it's do politics very on this show, really. I know this could be dangerous. This could be. <laughs> we should really just go and have Greg and Andrew's politics show where we argue about these sorts of things. So I think uh, my coffee's definitely done. <laughs> I'm all done. I'm ready for another. All right. Uh, where will you be this week? Uh, I will be uh, home working uh, for Information Week. There you go. Well, I'm going to San Francisco on Sunday. I'll be over visiting the GigaOM Structure Conf and generally rattling around the valley, meeting people and uh, trying not to overindulge in various uh, social activities. Uh, if, <laughs> yeah, I mean beer? Yeah, <laughs> beer, environation, beer clocking, you know, all those sorts of things. Uh, so that's the coffee break. It's still a work in progress, and one day we will take this seriously and stop talking about politics. You can find more in the show notes at packetpushers.net on the blog post that accompanies the publishing of the show, and you can follow the Packet Pushers on Twitter. We'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.